Hello, everyone. Welcome to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today I'm super happy to introduce our next guest, Aaron Salko. Aaron's got a great story. He's had an amazing journey. He's got a perspective that brings so much value to so many people. He started out professionally waiting tables. From there, transitioned into a career in personal training, and from there, transitioned to a career in business development, where he grinded, worked hard, taught himself, built relationships across the country, and propelled himself to become a regional sales executive and a leader and a mentor who people are consistently seeking out for his advice and thought leadership, not just in the sales and business development world, but in the leadership world as well. His current project is the Ninth Stratum, where he is now dedicating himself to the study of high performers. And not just what do high performers do that's different than the rest of us, but what can we all do to get ourselves up to that consistent high performing level? And what can we all do to get others up there as well? Because as he will tell you, what we're doing to dedicate ourselves to the time and the development of other people is among the most important things we can do with our time. So really, really, really excited to have Aaron on the show with us today and learn from his perspective, his research, and his upcoming book as well. Before we jump into the conversation, of course, we have to thank our sponsors, Humantel. If you're looking to update your skill set and your ability to understand what people are likely thinking, feeling, experiencing at any moment in time by understanding their facial expressions and their nonverbal communication, please check out humantel.com for industry-leading online training and other resources. If you do, enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E-2-5 for 25% off their online training. Please also check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine, ei-magazine.com, where they have an ever-expanding library of emotional intelligence-related articles, books, videos, podcasts, events, so much going on over there. Check them out. And yes, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com a group of elite professional investigators who have dedicated themselves to providing certification, training, resources, events for professional investigators around the world, across disciplines, to make sure they have all the tools and resources necessary to conduct morally, legally, and ethically successful interviews in a wide range of contexts. So please check them out. We're grateful for their support. Thank you for taking the time to check out our conversation today. And without further ado, Aaron Salko. Aaron, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. I hope you're doing great. Michael, awesome always to see you. And uh, congratulations on all the success of the book. Um, it's really awesome to see you out there and, and getting the, the word out. So glad to be here. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And I'll put the check in the mail for that compliment. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So as as we put these shows together and we bring people on, our goal is to try to bring together as many interesting perspectives on listening and communication that we can from all kinds of different walks of life, if you will. And for me, as I've gotten to know you, your story fascinates me on so many different levels, from where you've been, to the different experiences you've had, to the career that you've built, to some amazing projects that you're working on. And really with this conversation, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to share at least some pieces of that with our listeners. So thank you very much. I appreciate it more. I mean, this is, this is awesome to, to do this with you. Well, and thank I, you. I, I hold you in a high regard for your career as well. So um, let's, let's dive in, I guess, huh? Let's do it. So at the expense of sounding like your average psychiatrist, <laughs> um, huh. this will make more sense as we get later into the conversation and talk more about some of the things you're working on now. But start laying the groundwork for that. And for me, just knowing from our conversations what you've achieved and and what you've built for yourself, professionally and personally, I'm very curious into how you believe your upbringing contributed to putting you in position to achieve all that you have. Yeah, it's a great question, too. Um, You know, when you look at where I came from, I came from a very small coal mining town called Carbondale, Pennsylvania. And, you know, albeit it was very simple. Um, and very small, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, I grew up 
in this little suburb of that town called Crystal Lake Forest, which allowed me to go out and be creative in the woods and, and you know, build tree forts and, you know, go to the lake and swim and, you know, do things that kids should be doing. But, um, you know, my parents, uh, my dad was a, my dad was a psychologist. Um, my mom was a teacher and my mom was very creative. Uh, my dad, the psychologist was also a serial entrepreneur, you know, buying everything from, you know, owning a restaurant to, uh, we, we owned a, a cab company at one point. Um, and so as a, as a kid, you're ingrained in, in working at these places. You know, the child labor laws uh, were not <laughs> instilled back then. So I actually have a picture of myself at seven years old standing on a, on a milk crate washing dishes at my parents' at my first restaurant. That's awesome. So yeah, it, it taught me uh, what work was. Um, it taught me, you know, it taught me that I could make, make money, that I could buy things, uh, you know, uh, that, I, that I wanted. Um, like comic books, and, uh, you know, as I grew through the restaurant business, you know, you start washing dishes and then, you know, my mom taught me how to cook and you begin to work behind the line a little bit. And then they put you on the floor and you begin to wait tables. Um, and so there's a lot of public, uh, and social interaction. And I learned very quickly the importance of kindness and, you know, what that gets, what that gets you. And, what kindness, what the lack of kindness doesn't get you. Um, and so, you know, going through that, you know, there was a, it was a great upbringing. It was a lot of work when my, my friends were playing, uh, you know, video games and, and, and outside on Saturdays, I was working uh, breakfast and lunch duty at the restaurant. So uh, work ethic was ingrained in me. Um, my grandfather uh, was a builder. Uh, he also was was very very tough in, in that aspect of it, but as uh, as I grew up, you know, I, I continued that route, and um, it was wasn't until my senior year in high school, um, well, actually two years before my senior year in high school, you know, my dad was a was a, a hemophiliac, and he had gotten AIDS, the AIDS virus, from a bad batch of factor it was a factor eight, um, the blood clotting factor, uh, and you know. It was tough for our family. And so I was the eldest of three. Uh, I have a brother that's five years younger than me and a sister that's about 10 years younger than me. And so I had to quickly step into a, a you know, a family leadership position uh, at a very young age. You know, I think I was 16. And through that progression of two years where, you know, he rapidly declined and then eventually passed away, you know, there was a lot of growing up really fast, uh, you know, school helping my mom, um, the restaurant business, you know, keeping that afloat. And then after he passed, I was also trying to figure out where, where the hell am I going to go to college? What do I want to do? Um, I played a lot of sports. Uh, sports was my thing. Um, team mentality, sports, basically, you know, I did play golf. I still play golf. Not very good. Uh, but, you know, all these things I believe contributed to, to who I am today. And as I took it through college, you know, I had to be very scrappy and, and, and if you will, gritty, you know, to sort of survive because there wasn't a college fund. You know, we paid for college, you know, on our own, uh, did it waiting tables um, and did, per, you know, did personal training. And, and um, that led me into that physical therapy field uh, of which I came out of. And um, after, you know, so many years of college and uh, it just wasn't it wasn't there for me. Um, the healthcare field took a, took a pretty rapid decline when I, when I came out of school and, uh, my buddy was working for this company and here I am today. Uh, he said, Hey, you, you should do this. Uh, you'd be good at it. You've got all the social skills to do it. Um, and you've got the drive to do it. And, uh, I found it to be a, a great, a great fit for me. So today I work for a company called Stephen Gould Corporation. I've been there for 22 years, uh, and I'm a regional sales manager for that organization. And we're going to dive into what you've built and what you've done there. Obviously, much belated, but my condolences to your family for the for the whole situation with your father and can't begin to imagine the impact that that had on all of you at, at such a young age and time with your family. To talk a little bit more about the kind of the early stages. Yeah. I'm very interested, maybe oddly, in 
the lessons you took away from working in the restaurants, especially waiting tables, I feel so there you're you're in sales. So there's a, a client of mine that I was leading a, a session with working on potential and again, that topic is going to come back up as we talk. And he and I was talking about identifying potential in people based on looking for the skills and attributes unique to what they've done, not the specific roles or places that they've been. Yeah. And he, when we taught that, he came up to me on break. This is the CEO of the organization and told me how that really struck home for him because he recently hired a person to do sales cold call. And he thought it was a stretch. She had no sales experience whatsoever. He said, I didn't think she had any cold calling experience, but I really liked her. She's by far the best. She's an all-star. She's she out cold calls and does better on the phone than anybody I've got. I said, really? He looked at me and he said, yes, she grew up a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> That's sales 101, buddy. <laughs> if you, she's been knocking on doors and cold calling people yeah. her whole life, right? Yeah. Nothing about the religion yeah. itself. Just that's what she grew up doing. So that's you look great. at a resume and you think, well, she doesn't have any sales experience. Why would I talk to her? Um, actually, she is the person you should be talking to. And if she has any brothers, sisters, or friends, sign them up too. Send them, send them my way. <laughs> so for me, when you think about serving tables, what percentage of Americans in some way, shape, or form have waiting tables or busing tables or working as a restaurant in a restaurant among their earliest jobs? And of course, all of us have gone out to eat and seen that. So it might not seem like the the biggest place to start a conversation, but for me, I'm fascinated. What did you learn waiting tables that you still carry today as you've built your career? You, you know, um, waiting tables is sales 101. I mean, it is it is the hard knocks of sales. Uh, you know, I had a start, I did it at a really young age. Um, I was probably maybe 12 or 13 years old waiting tables. You know, I was busting first and then and they're like, hey, just go ask that lady what she wants. And I remember the first, I remember the first table they gave me to wait. To this day, um, it was this woman, she used to come in a restaurant all the time and they said, go take Mary's, go take Mary's. And I remember Mary's uh, um, order. And I was like, me? And they're like, yeah, you know, you know what the menu is. You know what, you know, what we do here. And I said, all right. So I went over to it and I was very shy. And I was very like, you know, um, you know, quiet. And Mary said to me, she said, Aaron, I've known you for like five years. She goes, Don't be nervous. I'd like a coffee and like your mom's tuna fish sandwich. Right. And I and I had my little pen, I wrote it down. I said, Okay, thanks. <laughs> Man, back to the kitchen, and and I was like this big relief, and and the more you did it, the, the the better you got at it. But when it came to when it came to um, to sales, you learn a lot about um, the way you approach somebody, right? The approach, the way you show up, uh, is is the immediate interaction sets the stage for the interaction you're going to have with that person or with that table, right? They're going to judge you. You're going to judge them, and 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 you're going to have this this little a quick quick formation of a of a um, you know, transactional relationship. And so you've got to be able to you know in the restaurant business there are certain things you want to sell, and there are certain things that you stay away from because of food costs, right? And so you want to convince people what your favorite dish is. You want to convince people what they should try. You want to convince them, even though they're full. To have a slice of my grandmother's homemade lemon meringue pie before they leave, right? And so, and all, and, and you understand that the higher the tab, the higher the bill, bigger the tip, and the better you do in service to them, the bigger the tip. And so, you learn that quickly, and 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 the value of kindness. You know, just you know, when you're in when you're in waiting tables, you're truly in service of other people, and so you really got to be attentive. Um, you've got to, you've got to be able to, you know, in some restaurants that I worked in, you had to memorize the, the, the menu and you, you could not go to the table with, you know, the, the, uh, the pad, you had to memorize what they were, what they were asking you to, uh, for their, for their order. So, um, you know, you know, your listening skills, you know, that, that, that's a big part of, of, of what goes on. And it's also reading the table, right? You've got a, a new couple, um, you know, maybe first date. And you've got a this 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 you know young man's trying to impress this young woman. Um, you've got a family who's celebrating something. 
you know, you don't want to be the waiter that comes to the table in a, in a, in a joyous celebration and is just like, Hey, what can I get you guys to eat? Yeah. You know, it's like, you want to become part of that interaction and you want them to, to embrace you too. So waiting tables is awesome. I, I would do it today if, if I, if given the opportunity, um, because I had so much fun doing it and it really taught you how to engage the general public. You know, you weren't, uh, you really had a, um, be relatable to a multitude of different uh, personalities. You know, people came in, they were pissed off. Some people came in, they were happy as hell. You know, others were stressed. So you, you, have, to, you have to be able to be nimble in, in your approach too. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's a big part of it. I love all of it. The, the situational awareness, the knowing where you need them to be or where you want them to be and, and how to get there, forging the relationships, how you show up. I love absolutely all of it. I'm curious to ask one follow-up question. I know we've got some other topics that, that we want to get to today, but I've got to ask one follow-up question. You mentioned working at restaurants where you had to memorize the order. You couldn't yeah. show up with the pad. When we think about listening, and we think about the concept of staying presence, which is thrown out to mean so many different things in so many different conversations. One of the ways, or yeah, I guess I'll say it this way. One of the ways that we find ourselves unable to remain present is when we get lost in our internal monologue. Oh yeah. And one of the more common ways we get lost in our internal monologue is trying to remember what somebody said either in this conversation or in a previous conversation. So I would love to ask you, what tricks or techniques did you create in order to help memorize somebody's order in a chaotic restaurant environment as you were going yeah. from table to table? Yeah, it was. Uh, so I had a trick that I used to use. Um, and so you, if you look at a table, right, you can sort of match it to the fingers on your hand. Um, and so if there's five people at the table, you can go, okay, seat one, two, three, four, five. I know what that is. And really it was an association game in, in my head. So, you know, I would, I'd be, I'd just have my hands behind my back, you know, take your order. And, it, and as the first person was speaking, I'd hold out my thumb. And that thumb was my, my relatable cue to what that person's order was. So I knew the thumb was, you know, uh, you know, the appetizer, the entree and, and the beverage or whatever. And so I would go through that, that, that whole thing. And then, you know, it was, the, it was also the visual cue. So when I would get back, I'd go, okay, you know, this person wanted this, this person wanted this, this person wanted this, this person wanted this. And I'd be able to, to, to knock it down. So it was just a, re, it was a relating game in my head um, because sometimes the orders were, you know, they would be like, but I don't want this and I do want this. And, you know, I need a side of this. And it's like, okay, you know, Pinky's got 17 things that she wants here. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the pinky man the pinky, always the pinky man <laughs> for, so, yeah. for me i've found that even and i love that that association trick absolutely love it people now are going to think i'm weird when i walk up behind him with my hands behind my back so what do you want to what do you want to talk about <laughs> uh, <laughs> um hopefully i don't run out of fingers with things I yeah, yeah. but what do i tell myself while they're talking to me so I found myself in situations where if I'm saying to myself, oh no, I'm never going to remember this. I'm actually concentrating on forgetting, whether I realize yeah. it or not, I'm forcing myself to forget. But while I'm talking to them, if I'm saying, okay, I need to remember this. Now, whether it's a relational mechanism, whether it's some sort of you know word game I'm playing or you know with, with different techniques that people have, literally telling myself I need to remember this versus telling myself I'm never going to remember this, that in and of itself can make a huge difference. Yeah. The, the focus needed, like you had to become so fluid in thought when it came to the getting to that table and, and sort of not talking yourself out of, oh, I'm going to forget this, you yes. know, and, and you, you're, you know, you, you'd sort of like transition your mind to not only relate to the, the fingers, like I said, but you know, the people themselves, like even the inflection in their voice, if somebody said, I want the cowboy ribeye steak, you know, you'd remember that. And they'd be like, okay, I know that guy wants the cowboy ribeye steak, right? Um, so, you know, it, it's that little voice in your head can really mess with you. Big time. Uh, and you've got to be really practiced to get that, that voice out of your head. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny that that little technique I was telling you about, um, I, I use that and I teach that uh, to, to my sales, my salespeople, um, uh, when it comes to, you know, when you're engaged in a conversation and 
you know, that little voice in your head is listening to the person speak, but then you're like, oh, I want to interject something. You know, I, I need to say that. And, and you know, I call them thought busters. You know, you can be a thought buster, you're screwed because you're going to miss out on the magic that, you know, somebody's going to tell you or the information or data you're going to attain and like something that, that could be really pertinent to the conversation. And you're, you're, you're going to crush the creativity too of, of somebody if they're really telling you something that's really um, innovative or creative. So one of the one of the things is you know obviously I have a pad and paper there so when you do have that that quick thought of like oh I need to interject here just jot it down and wait till they're done and go into it but if you don't have that pad and paper I do I, I use the relationship the visual relationship of like looking at something in your environment like it could be your it could be your your foot could be you know a mirror a, a picture on the wall and associating that image or that i that item with the thought so that when they're done. You're still engaged. You're still listening. You're still you're still highly attentive, but then you can go. Let me go back to something you said, and you can look at that and remember what it was you wanted to say. Because a lot of people, they you know, and I know you know this, but they jump into conversations because they're afraid they're going to lose the thought. Yes, you know, and and um, if if you're disciplined like that, and if you if you actually have this practice down, uh, you can you can share the magic. You can get the magic out of people too. Amen. I'm not going to add anything to it. <laughs> That's spot on. You mentioned teaching your salespeople. I would love to get into your sales career for a few moments here. And if I recall our conversations correctly, you had approximately zero traditional sales experience when you took your first sales job. But I think what we've already heard from you and your upbringing and what you learned in some of your other jobs, your success is no surprise to anybody. But I'm really curious as you took on the role and have built a very impressive book of business in multiple locations and developed teams who are building their own impressive books of businesses. What was your mindset when you jumped into this world with none of the traditional experience that people typically look for? You know, I, oh, I, I, I think I took, I think I took like three college classes that maybe relate to what I do today. And those were all psychology classes. That was it. My, my dad would, by the way, my dad was like this awesome psychologist. Um, and he used to play like Jedi mind tricks on me all the time. And I just, I always wondered like, why the hell did I ever go into psychology, by the way, for like for college? I never, <laughs> never chose that route. But anyway, um, yeah, when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the salespeople and, and um, you know, going back to where were we going with this conversation? We were going- Your to- mindset is you- mind- Built your career. Yes. So I hop into to Stephen Gould and I know nothing about packaging, global, um, you know, uh, uh, global logistics or distribution, fulfillment, and that's all we did. And so, and I, and I knew nothing about business. I, I hadn't taken one business course. I'm completely self-taught in, in everything I've done uh, under this organization. And so- you know, as I think I was 26 years old when I joined Stephen Gould, and um, I did what I always defaulted to, and I just I dove into books and I started reading, you know, um, about business, about organizations, about executing, you know, execution basically, of, you know, getting things from point A to point B, uh, how to organize. Um, you know, uh, some of the technical data, I would, I would go to like our, our manufacturing plants and just sit at the plants and have them take me through tours and learn, you know, learn that process. And I quickly realized that um, I was out of my league. <laughs> and so, cause I, I went into a couple, you know, new meetings, I was cold calling. I went into a couple of new meetings and I remember the one guy said, uh, you do, you do vacuum forming. And I, and I was like, yeah, we, we do vacuuming. <laughs> no idea what I was talking. Office looks clean. I don't. See <laughs> and so uh, I walked out of that meeting, going, "Yeah, I, I blew that one big time." But um, you know, it 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 got to a point where uh, the reading and the application really helped me, and that that, that actually you know it you know goes into what I've done you know recently. But you know, I was always a, the way I always learned was I would read something. And I would either look to apply it immediately, or I would relate it to something I've, I've already done. And I'd be like, oh, that's how I did that. That's why I did that. 
And so that's how I learned. Um, and I began to, uh, you know, utilize everything that I read and everything that I was applying in the field of play, many failures, uh, which taught me many lessons. Uh, it was a, it was a big time trial and failure. I had a lot of, um, a lot of failures in the beginning. Uh, but, but every time I failed, those were like trophies of, of those, those were my trophies. You know, I learned great lessons from those failures. And even to the, even today, I, I still do. But um, that's what sort of got me from that point A to point B. And then I started getting good at it. And then, you know, my acumen in, in business began to raise and I began to dive deeper into more sophisticated techniques and more sophisticated um, type of business books that, you know, I, I then went and applied again, just kept going, going, going. I love it. And one of the things that I heard you mention was your failures being trophies, which is a very interesting perspective. And I think failing forward is something that's gained a lot more traction over the last maybe five, 10 years, something like that, but certainly not something many people are comfortable with. And definitely not at the time that you were experiencing this. This is more of an, a newer focus, I believe, in the world of leadership. Not certainly wasn't the case when when you were going through these trials. So with the time that we've got, I would love one example, if one comes to mind, where you made a mistake, but what the value you took from that mistake is still something that you are growing from or applying today. Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest ones, um, you know, the biggest mistakes I've made in my career uh, was 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 actually after I, I had built my 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 business portfolio. I, I had done it in Pittsburgh, by the way. So I started in a in an office in South Jersey, and I, I really wanted the path to management. And when they when I asked like, what is the path? They said, well, somebody has to retire. You have to open up a you know a new territory. And um, I said, uh, what's the territory here? And they said. Well, we control all of South Jersey. This office is, is that's territory, and all of Pennsylvania. I said all of Pennsylvania. I said, uh, well, Philly's you know pretty close here, so I, I guess that's pretty tapped. I said, what about like Western Pennsylvania, you know, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh? And they said, yeah, we got we got nothing out there. And at that moment, like I had this vision. I was like, okay, there's my path management. I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive and I'm going to go bang on doors and I'm going to make I'm going to build relationships and I'm going to open up a territory. And that's how, my, that's how I'm going to get into it. And so that's what I did the first four years of my career. And then that happened. They made me a manager out there. We opened the office, successful portfolio, uh, began onboard you know, uh, staff and, tra and training and, and things of that nature. Then they yanked me back to uh, the corporate headquarters because there was a, there was a, a manager uh, change. And it was, a, it was a great opportunity for me. Um, and uh, they gave me that opportunity. When I came back, this is the big mistake. When I came back, I was a really good sales agent. Um, I knew how to uh, get into accounts. I knew how to structure the deals. And I knew how to um, set up the supply chains. Um, and when I got into this office, I looked at everybody there, and it was it was sort of an underperforming office at the time. We had a lot of sales agents and and little revenue. And I went in and I said, "Okay, here's who I am." Here's what I do. Everybody keep up with me. That was not, that was the biggest failure I could have made as a young new manager stepping into a veteran office with people looking at me going, I don't give a shit who you are. Like, yeah. that's not going to fly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it wasn't, a, it, it was a, it, I learned very fast that that was not the way to make friends or gain, um, or gain trust. And so I had a I had a pivot real fast. And I was like, okay, I got to stop that, and I got to like begin to break down my processes of how I did this and and how I became a successful sales agent, and begin to teach that to these other people. And that's what that's that's where the, the you know the the teaching part of my career really started. I love the example. It it's teaching almost anything. More often than not, there's more than one right way to do it. So as long as they understand how it's done, why it's done, if they're going to do it their own way to a degree within the framework, good for them, right? They own yeah, it. Right, right. Your teaching mentality in, in your unique background, 
with with those two things in mind, when you are looking to hire on board new sales associates, new sales representatives, what are you looking for mm. in somebody that you want to bring on to your team? That's a great question. Um, talk about failures uh, in the beginnings. <laughs> you know, the the entrepreneurial environment that is Stephen Gould is a is a, it's a tremendous opportunity, but it takes a very special in type of individual to do it because it is full commission. And um, you do have to know a lot about a lot of things. And so in the beginning, I was hiring in almost a begging way, like, please come work for this company. I will, I will show you the way to the promised land, right? That was another failure, right? My ego got in the way. Um, and so my, on, my, my initial onboarding was, was bad. I, I, was, I was not hiring the right talent. Um, I was not getting the results I wanted out of that talent. And we lost a lot of talent. And, you know, we began to, you know, as, as, I, as I transitioned into, into the New Jersey uh, office and, and as my, as my um, territories grew with Pittsburgh and Cleveland and, and now Rybrook, um, we had to get really good at hiring. And I was still making mistakes. You know, I, and, and, you know, part of the mistakes I was making was I was leaning too much into the likability of a person. Um, and, you know, the, the, there was a lot of referrals. We, we are, we are, we, we take a lot of referrals and like, and so you'd have like, you know, uh, you know, Johnny who would walk in the office and be like, Hey, my cousin, Joey wants to sell packaging. And I think you'd love the guy. And, you know, Joey walk in and bounce around the office, making people laugh. And, you know, it'd be like, this is great. You know, like I want Joey. Yeah. I want him on my team. Meanwhile, you know, Joey couldn't organize himself out of a paper bag and, you know, he, he couldn't type well and his delivery was horrible and I'm stuck with Joey. Now I got to dig him out of the trenches to try to make him somewhat of a, a successful sales agent. And then, you know, obviously we all know where that, that leads. So, um, you know, the, the onboarding had to really be, you know, critiqued and, 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 and um, I guess analyzed. And where I started, and this is where, you know, obviously where the, where the book comes from and, and my next, you know, this, this next thing is, you know, I had to begin to look at the low performers that I hired and understand why they didn't make it. You know, what were those skills that they were missing or deficient in? And why couldn't I get them out of those skills or get the, you know, raise those skills? Or how, how could I have raised those skills with them? And then I looked at the high performers and I saw you know, all these things like, you know, like perseverance, resourcefulness, composure, you know, these are all these skills that these, these high performing individuals had. And I began to look at them going, okay, that's, that's what we want. How do we get it? You know? And so recruitment was big. You know, we had a, we had a really dive into um, a good recruiting firm and uh, you know, start to realize how they, um, they did things and how they sought talent. But I also um, I, I uh, sought out uh, professional coaching in HR um, because I wasn't good at interviewing. You know, um, I wasn't asking the right questions. I began again reading more books. Um, you know, on in, on interviewing and and how do you interview people and what do you look for and how do you ask questions that are going to draw out the skills that you want out of this person. And so uh, that was that was the road to to really trying to understand what talent looked like. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a long road, Michael. It's 22 years. You know, I've been a manager for 17 of those years. And, you know, in the last three years, I've had, I've had some, some tough hires, you know, some referrals that we thought, hey, we'll give them a shot, give them an opportunity. And, you know, COVID you know, didn't, didn't work well for a lot of people, but you know, that's an excuse. And there's no excuses when it comes to high performance. True. You said something that I'm fascinated with. I'm so happy you brought it up because we're going to dive back into it. But to touch on that, the danger of hiring, so to speak, interviewing or choosing to onboard somebody is like test driving a car while the car is showing off for you. Right, right. right? Like I'm going to go drive three cars for 10 minutes each and decide which one I might want to own for the next five years. But if I decide I don't like it, as long as I don't you know, get a bad deal, I can trade it on another one and I'm still okay. But with an employee, 
we're basically going to test drive it with the interview process while they're showing off for us, putting their best foot forward. Our biases, pressures, expectations are involved in the process. And then once we hire, we're kind of married to them a little bit because yeah. then we have all these additional times and costs and things. So there's all, you know, nobody is a hundred percent successful with who they hire, but I love, and we've talked about this before, what you're really looking for with the perseverance and the composure and the ability to learn and connect and, and those types of things. Yeah. To, to take advantage of the time we have today, so often when I don't, well, I guess I was to say it this way, so often when I talk to, or even if I don't talk to them, I read the work of people who study high performance people. I just had a book recommended to me and it was a good book. It was written by a person who had the opportunity to work with professional athletes. So the story was all about high performance from the perspective of working with these professional athletes. Okay, awesome. Cool stories. I definitely got some notes out of it. I enjoyed it. I love the fact that you started by studying low performers because I feel like that is overlooked in the process. People love to brag about the high performers, but they don't spend the time looking at the other end of the spectrum for very critical lessons, not only on what separates the two, but what can be done to elevate the lower performers to become the higher performers. So let's use this as the segue. You've got a book coming out. I can't wait to talk about this. The ninth stratum. Probably going to need you to explain to me what that is, but to use it as a segue, how did studying low performers position you to better develop and coach high performers? Yeah. You know, the, the low performers taught me the most um, because it, it taught me what held people back. Um, you know, you can begin to break down a person and see what their, what their strengths are and their deficiencies are. And you can do this you know, through the, the basic interactions of, during a day. Um, but, you know, a lot of what, what I learned from the low performers were, you know, the critical skills that are necessary for the job, um, they were deficient in, uh, and that, that, that also helped me to understand like, Hey, for every job and I'm, you know, you know, I'm speaking and I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody in the HR world. They all know this, but for like, for these specific roles, we really need to, you know, to single out the skills that are critically necessary to being successful in these roles. Now you have your hard career skills and you have what I, what they call soft skills. And I hate that term because there are nothing soft about the soft skills. Those are the, those are the high performance skills, right? And so, you know, when you look at the low performers, you saw how much those deficiencies and those skills affected their ability to become successful or even have a even have the basic daily wins that you need to perpetuate growth and perpetuate you know your your own trajectory for success. So yeah and and then looking at those skills and saying okay you know how many of these skills are innate and how many of these skills can be can be taught learned and then applied and improved upon right and you know, that was a big part of the basis of the ninth stratum too, which was the learning, you know, the, the, the way people learn. Um, but going back to going back to the skills real quick, um, you know, you have the, everybody thinks that certain skills are innate. I know high performance is innate with, with what I've done and, and, and with, and what, what we've, the research in the book and just, um, the boots on the ground learning and the application of this throughout my career and many other people's careers, even outside of Stephen Gould, people I've engaged, high performance is not innate. High performance is anybody can achieve high performance, but it comes with desire and it comes with effort. You know, without desire and effort, you, you're not going to get past the starting line, right? And, you know, change is tough. Uh, you have to really lean into change. You have to be ready to, to accept change. And that's what part of the, the, the book really focuses on the performance mindset and the achievement mindset. Both have big time thing, you know, big time um, uh, connections to change. You know, and if you can get into these things, change isn't so tough. And you can take these baby steps to, to, to make change in your life that leads you on that path to, to a higher trajectory of performance, to optimizing your own performance. So yeah, that's, uh, it, 
you know, the low performers were great. You know, the high performers were great. And, uh, and now you'd be able to, you're able to begin to look at these skills and begin to dissect them and, and say, okay, you know, like an innate skill is, you know, being six foot. Okay. Not everybody's six foot. You know, you're kind of screwed if, if you want to be a basketball player and, and you know, you're not, you're not over six foot. Um, but can you have composure? Can you have, can you, um, can, you know, do you have likability? Do you have relatability? Uh, do you have boldness? These, these are skills that everybody thinks are innate. They're not. They can be taught. They can be learned. They can be applied. And so that's where the low performers really came in. It's like, how do I teach that? How do I identify what these skills are, all the skills of high performance, and then begin to break them down and teach it? One more thing on this, because this, this was something I, I, I really learned. Everybody thinks work ethic is innate, right? Oh, my grandfather, great work ethic. My dad, my parents, they taught me work ethic, right? right? I inherited that from them. If you really think about that, work ethic is not an innate skill. Your grandfather, your parents had a process to work. And if you look at their process and you break it down, you can teach it, right? So your grandfather, I got up at 6 a.m. every day. I was always 20 minutes early to the job. I never left the job till I, till I finished the last piece of work I had. I took pride in my work. I made sure that you know, if something was, was supposed to be, my grandfather was a, was, a, uh, was a builder, by the way. So he was very critical on like how things lined up. And, you know, if, if, if something was off, I would do it again. Okay. That's not just him having this innate ability. He has a process to his work ethic. And if you break that process down, you can teach it. Right. So, so that's, that's what this whole, this whole, this whole concept, this whole framework is about for high performance. It's identifying these skills which we learned from the low performers and the high performers, and then begin, beginning to be able to teach those skills and raise the stratum of these people uh, so they can achieve a higher level of operating. There's so much gold in there. <laughs> we're we're going to talk for three more hours. Clear your calendar. There's so much gold in there. Right. Number one, validating the skills by looking at them from both sides. Yeah. It's not just here's what awesome people do. Here's what lower well the lower performers can still be awesome people. They're just low performing in this context. Yeah. But here's what lower performers appear to bring to the table, not bring to the table, the effect that has, vice versa for the high performers, bringing those together in order to arrive at these skills. I think it was 45 of them if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. But to me as we're, and we're going to dive back into that for a second, but there's a nugget that's worth really referencing here. If you can break it down into a process, you can teach it. And how many people either a don't understand why or how they do something. So their idea of teaching it is just like, follow me, do what I do, do it the way that I do. That's not teaching that's telling. And how many people could improve themselves in any aspect of their life if they just break down whatever they're doing into a process, separate yeah. the process from the results and either teach somebody else the process, teach yourself that process. So that just that concept alone of break it down into a process and teach it is gold. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, my, like all like all the athletes out there that listen to this, right? They want to be um, like Tiger Woods, let's say, like golfers. You know, you could look at Tiger and said, "Yeah, he had the build, like he had the he had the the structural build and the, and the mentality." But if you look at if you if you really wanted to break down his process, there was a time he woke up. There was an amount of time he spent on each club. There was an amount of time he spent studying the game. There was an amount of time he spent on the course. Right then, he achieved certain goals. You know, he, he set goals. He won, you know, he was a you know high school all-star athlete, right? And like then he was a college athlete and like and he and he won certain awards in, at different levels. There's your process. I have to do this, I have to win that award. I have to then do this, I have to win that award. You could follow, you know, athletes could follow the same trajectory of success as the Tiger Woods, you know, you know, by breaking down his process and running it. Oh. That, and that, that holds true in business. It holds true in anything you want to do in life that you want to achieve. I love it. Let's talk about the ninth stratum. The, 
the process of writing a book, all the research that you've done, you know, this wasn't you saying, hey, I've got an idea, da, 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 here it is. The, the amount of research that you've done, the amount of time and effort that you've put into it. So I'll ask you, I'll commit a sin that is one of my pet peeves, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to set you up to talk. What set you out on the path of writing this book? What were the goals that you were looking to achieve with it? Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of a backstory to this. Uh, Kelly Johnson, who is my business partner in Stephen Gould world. Um, but when I hired Kelly uh, over a decade ago, it was during that transition process when I left Pittsburgh and went to New Jersey. And I needed somebody to, to continue to grow the accounts that I had opened in Pittsburgh. I needed a project manager. So I hired Kelly and I said, she said, what, are, you know, what do you need me to do? I said, I need you to you know, be a project manager. She goes, what does that entail? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I said, uh, but here's what we're going to do. Um, you're going to sit in on every meeting I have and you know, you're going to see how I do things and, and you're going to break down my process and you're going to, you know, I, I need you to sort of be me here and just adapt, adopt it, but then make it your own because you're your own person. Right. And, um, she did that. And so during this process, uh, because we work so closely together, she would write a lot of these things down, right? And I would do like sales, you know, as my as my sphere of influence grew and and the amount of sales agents I I um, had on board that that worked under me, you know, I, I wanted to get and teach these processes that made me successful. So I would have these sales strategy meetings, and I would we write these things down, or I'd tell a sales agent, "Hey, go try this." You know, you know, when you're doing this meeting, do this, and they'd come back and they say, "Yeah, that works." And like, okay, good, works. Thanks. Nice. Right. <laughs> and so. Fast forward to, to COVID hits, right? Now you're taking, you're taking all these salespeople off the road and sticking them in their homes. It's like, you know, it's, you're just like, get me out of here, right? <laughs> so it was, COVID was really tough. You know, it was tough on me. It was tough on the entire world. Um, mentally on me, you know, it was, it was very hard. And I was very... Um, at first, I was like, okay, gather the teams. You know, how do we how do we keep everybody talking and everybody communicating? But then after a while, you know, it was just like you're in your house. And I was just, I was depressed. I was bored. Um, I didn't know what the hell I want to do. And the one day uh, I was talking to Kelly about a about a, a, business, a business thing we were, we were doing, and she's like, dude, what, what what's wrong with you? And I was like, Kelly, I'm I'm done. I'm bored. I'm like, I I just I can't do this anymore. And she goes, Time to write the book. I said, what? She goes, yeah, it's time to write the book. I said, I said, what book? She goes, Aaron, you have decades worth of content that, that, you've, that you've used to teach people how to get from point A to point B in this career. This is an entrepreneurial environment. She goes, this is applicable, not just to Stephen Gould world. This is applicable to everybody. She's like, and I said, well, you know, where do we find this content? She goes, look in OneNote. Look in OneNote. There's all the sales strategy meetings. There's all the things we told you know, sales agents to do. There's all of my techniques and, and practices and stuff. And she's like, yeah, you got chapters here. She goes, you got to just, you know, line them up. And that's what started it. And, you know, I have this, I have this desire to, to help others be successful. Um, I think I, I, you know, I, I think I was given a gift and I want to share that gift with the world. And I, and I really think that a lot of people are, um, misled in life when they don't have good mentorship, they don't have good coaches, and they're sort of stuck in this in this malaise of like, um, you know, what do I do? Am I good enough? You know, am I just mediocre? Because if I had to ask you, okay, what is, what's the path to high performance, or what's the what's the path to improving your performance in your career? Many people look at you and go, I don't even know where to start. I have no idea, right? And so I have that, and I was like, okay. I have the starting place. I have the things you can do to really optimize your performance. And it's all backed by science. It's backed by psychology. It's backed by physiology and, and, and human biology. You know, and it's all these things that, you know, that, that we use on a daily basis that we take for granted that if we really pay attention to them and turn these behaviors into skills, you can strategically use these skills to optimize your performance. And that's what we did with the book. And so um, that's what started, man. And let me tell you something. I was, I'm not a writer. I, I love to write. Uh, my aunt um, 
who was an English teacher. I used to send her, uh, I'll give her the credit of my ability to write, by the way. I used to send her like greeting cards and like letters because, you know, we didn't have internet back then. <laughs> um, and she used to, she used to send me them back redlined. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, damn it. So like, you know, she taught me organically, like, you know, good grammar, good English. And so I really enjoyed writing and I had to find my writing style. Like I'm sure you, you went through this, the trials and tribulations of writing a book. Sure. It's not easy, man. And I don't know why I did it. <laughs> I still can't tell you. <laughs> but it, yeah, it was, um, it's a bucket list item. And it's something I think that I want to share with the world. Uh, I believe it can help people. And that's, that's really the magic of life. I mean, when, when you can, when you get a thank you, I'm not a gifts guy, but when somebody says, Hey, thank you, what you did for me, you know, really changed the way I operate or the, or, or my outlook on life or, you know, changed my life, man, that's like, you can, that's like giving me a bar of gold. I'm like, I'm like yeah, that's, that's, that's the juice right there. Yeah. So that, that, that's, that's rocket fuel for the day for oh, sure. Awesome. For sure. So to summarize from what I believe I understand, and you gave me a sneak peek, so I've, I've got to flip some some pages in the manuscript, and I love what I'm seeing. With the ninth stratum, it looks like it's a process. It's broken down to say these are the 45 skills, these yeah. are the nine levels, and this is how we can build from the first stratum to the ninth level because none of these skills are innate. They can all be learned. They can all be developed and anybody can put themselves through this process. Yeah. So if it's possible, could you quickly walk us through what it means to graduate from the first to the ninth stratum really yeah. in any area? Yeah. You know, this, the stratums, you know, I came up with this concept because as again, when you're breaking down a process of, lear of learning, um, and, and others have done this, by the way. So it's it's not anything new, but I've 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 sort of uh, boiled it down into in the ability to self-assess where you are in that learning, and are you doing the things that are going to get you to that level of operating of the ninth stratum? By the way, the ninth stratum is that level of high performance. It's the level that high performers operate at, in, a, in a daily basis. Um, High performance, by the way, as a, as, a, as a side tangent, gets a bad rap in society because the, the, the stigma of high performance is always given, or the, I'm sorry, that's not, maybe it's not a stigma, but maybe it's like an award, is always given to you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, Elon Musk, you know, all these people who are like put on these pedestals of, of, of high performance. And you know, that, that sets a high bar for the common individual who wants to achieve greatness. And they look at these people and go, wow, that's, that's, I can't do that. That's, that's, that's what high performance is. No way. Right. Not, not for me. So what I did with this is, is began to, to break it down and say, okay, Hey, that's, that's, they odd, they do operate at a high level in many of these 45 skills, but to be a high performer, doesn't mean you have to be uh, operating at the ninth stratum of all these 45 skills and behaviors. And, and the ninth stratum is when you have mastered the skill and you are able to teach it and you've developed your own processes for it. So it's a self-mastery and, and you have a continuous drive to improve. So it's not like you've arrived when you hit the ninth stratum. You know, you're just on this journey to, to be better than you were yesterday in this specific skill and you're focused on it and you have a high competency in it. So that's, and when you have these skills that relate to your career, you know, those are the people that you see that are high performers. You know, they've mastered the skills that are critical to their career and their ninth stratum in those, in those skills. And so if you break down the nine stratums of performance, you know, the first stratum is, is, is you know, you're unaware of this skill. You know, you really don't care about it. Um, you know, it could be composure and you're like, yeah, I'm going to fly off the handle whenever I want. Nope, we'll stop. <laughs> Why no. not? Why not? Uh, the second stratum is when you be, when you be, there's an awareness, right? Uh, but you don't really care. Like it's not, it's not like, it's not affecting you. Maybe you've gotten some feedback that, um, Hey, you know, your composure is really affecting your performance and you're like, yeah, whatever, but I'm stuck on my ways. I'm going to continue to do it. But now there's an awareness of, of the skill. 
The third stratum is when people have that aha moment, when they go, oh, oh, I better get my shit together here because this deficiency in this skill is really affecting my performance, right? And so then you go into that fourth stratum where you begin to seek the help. You begin to you know, look for coaching. You begin to seek books. You begin to seek the knowledge that you need to attain, um, you know, to, to go out and explore, right? So it's like that exploring, exploring stratum. The fifth stratum is when you've attained it, right? And um, you're, you're, you're reading the book, right? You're, you're, you're listening to the coach. You're doing everything you need to do uh, to, to, to uh, understand the knowledge of how to improve, but you haven't yet applied it because you're just you're sort of absorbing the knowledge. And that's where that sixth stratum comes in. Sixth stratum is like the, is, is the, is the, that, that you're taking, you're, you're going from wanting to, to, to change to taking action to change. So you begin to apply, you know, and in the sixth stratum, it's, it's scary, you know, because sometimes you're not really good at these skills and you're going to make a lot of mistakes and it's going to be really messy. Um, but the more you apply, the better you get. And that leads you into that seventh stratum where uh, you're practicing now. You're not just doing it once in a while when it suits you. You begin to formulate a, a consistent practice to it. You're more aware of it. You know, I'm not saying you're good at it. You know when you make a mistake, you know, and, and you, can, you can rebound and you go, I'm, I, was, I was uncomposed there. Got to work on that, right? And, and you're practicing. Then that practice leads to the eighth stratum. In the eighth stratum, you achieve a level of competency uh, and consistency um, that's more advanced, right? And so you're you're beginning to understand the process better. You you have a very high awareness of that skill. You know how to use it, and you begin to use it strategically in in, in life and in in your experiences. And the more you do it in there, the more consistent you get that's when you begin to form your own processes and your own techniques. And then you get so good at it that you can now teach it and that you continue to improve. That's, that's where you reach that ninth stratum. So those are the nine stratums of, of performance. Love the escalation, unawareness, aware, try it, commit to it, improve, teach, love all of it. And I don't think I have to look at your one note to know that, what you're describing here is really the scientific validation and expansion of how you've been developing your team for years. So with 45 skills, somebody might hear that and say, damn, man, 45 sounds like a lot. (laughs) Well, when I read through the list, so many of them are interconnected, deviations of each other, relationships to each other. So as somebody is developing any one particular skill, they're likely developing another three, four, or five along with it. So it's yeah. great to break it down in 45 because we can teach and we can be specific and we can point those out, but, but really they're growing together. With the few minutes that we have left here, if you had to choose, which I guess now you do because I'm asking you the question, what would be the top handful of skills that if you really were going to tell somebody, and I know position to position, situation to situation, it could be different, but just in life, in if you're going to grow a career, no matter what the career is, are there a handful of skills that in your research you believe would be the foundational skills to really focus on first? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to some of the top, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you right here. You know, listening is is probably the number one skill. Um, patience, uh, drive, um, composure is one of my one of my favorites. I, I I think it's it's seen throughout most high performers. Uh, and empathy, uh, empathy is a, a big time skill. But I also don't want to to negate the fact that the, your personal health skills come into play. You know, purposeful nutrition. Um, you know, physical activity, like these are all mental, mental well-being. These are all the skills that you need to hone in on. You know, it's great that you're high performance, great that you're making all this money and you're having this great life. But if you're not going to live long enough to enjoy it, what are we doing? Right. But uh, yeah. And and by the way, Mike, those, those skills, you know, I broke them down to five categories, which is mentality, cognitive ability, mastery of emotion, uh, social interaction and personal health. And so 
you know, not to overwhelm the audience, but it's not just like there's 45 and you have to learn. They're actually separated categories. And what you talked about too is how they're all interrelated. We, we actually identified power clusters. So yeah, there are ones that relate to each other. And if you raise one, you actually raise a couple more. Um, so yeah, the, the good, that's a good call out right there. Love it. So for the people that are listening and thinking, well, I know somebody or my team, my organization, this is another great development tool to add to our toolbox to work with our team. From what you've seen developing your teams and using this, and honestly, you've been using, you've been perfecting this of late. So I can imagine the results have even changed, but based on your experience employing much of this, what can people expect to see in terms of results? It's a process. There's, it's a roller coaster. But what can they expect to see in results when they commit themselves to a ninth stratum process? You will unequivocally raise your performance in your life. And, and, and you know, it's not just about monetary performance or success in your career. It's about fulfillment in life. You know, the ninth stratum is a, is a holistic approach of a human being. It's not just like focused on, oh, you got to get really good at your career, but your home life sucks and your personal health sucks. You know, this is, this is, every, this is everything all in. If you do this, if you commit to even taking pieces of, of the book, um, you're going to organically raise your performance, right? You can read this book and put it on the shelf and be like, you know what? I'm not ready for that. Uh, you know, it's not for me right now in this stage of my life. You know, I'm going to put it on the bookshelf. It's fine. But the fact you read the book, there are things in there that your subconscious and your conscious pick up on that you will use to optimize your performance in everyday life. No matter, no matter if you purposely do it or not, you're going to, you're, there are things in here that are very simple. We kept it simple on, on purpose. You know, it wasn't, I didn't want to put these, this big grandiose, you know, technique out there that was like, you know, takes, you know, 10 years to learn. These are, these are daily tactical applications that are, that are, that you can apply, you know, the second you read them and see results. Now, you may be messy with them, <laughs> you know, six stratum, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, if you practice, you can, you can get a lot better at them. You can't get to the ninth without the sixth. And you can't get to the six without the second. So it's, you talk about, we preached it all the time, separate the process from the results. We might've done everything wrong and lucked into a good result. Good luck repeating it. We might've done everything right, but didn't get the result we wanted based on circumstances outside of our control. But breaking down that process, putting ourselves through it, having the checks and balances, the milestones along the way, so important. I love the research behind it. I love the way that it's broken down. I love the partner assessments, the tools that come with it. Uh, and just for a little bit of context, you and I first met in a room full of high performing executives. Yeah. And not always, but you know, at least 51% of the time, there are a few people who will stick out in a room of high performers. Before I knew anything about you, you were somebody who stuck out significantly in a room of high performers. So to have gotten to know you over time, to have learned a little bit about your background, your passion, your skill, your mindset, and now your dedication to creating a process that can be replicated regardless of industry, business, person, that people can use to improve their lives across all aspects is really special to see. I'm excited to see where this goes, excited to see the rollout, excited for us to follow up on these conversations down the road and see where this ninth stratum jersey, not jersey, well, you're in jersey, so that fits. The ninth stratum journey in jersey takes you. So I can't thank you enough for spending the time. I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your insights. I can't let you go without asking. And I know the, the book is on its way. It's yeah. about to be released. It hasn't been published just yet. I'll have all the links. We'll have all the information. I'll participate in all the social media blasts to make sure we get that out there. But for people who are wanting to know, where do I go find out more about the ninth stratum? Are there places that they can go look or be prepared to look once it's ready? Yeah. Um, I'm not a not a huge social media person, but boy, I have to really lean into this. So says welcome my to my world, pal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So uh, you actually, you're going to see a lot of information coming out or, or social media through social media platforms like, uh, like LinkedIn, um, Instagram, uh, you know, wherever else they tell me it's going to go. So on the usual uh, yeah, content creation is going to happen. And, you know, it, you can find me on LinkedIn too. Um, if anybody wants to just chat, I'm always interested in hearing different perspectives. Um, and uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to, to have some outreach on in, in that aspect too. And well, by the way, Michael, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate everything you're doing. Um, I read your book cover to cover and it's awesome. And anybody who hasn't read it yet, you need to read it because it's got some, it just, just as we talk, it's got some really good tactical and easy to apply methods to, to, to that, are, that, are, that, are, that will, that will improve your performance in, in the discipline listening method. No, I appreciate the shout out. Thank you. Uh, again, I can't thank you enough for sharing the time today. Excited to see where all of this goes. Thank you so much. Congratulations, not just on the result, but on the commitment that it took to achieve these results. So really, really excited. I can't thank you enough. Stay safe, stay healthy. Look forward to talking with you again soon. All right, brother. Be good. Once again, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Really appreciated the conversation, sharing your experience, your insights for everyone. For all the listeners, I hope you took a lot from that conversation, not just on the high performance end, but even on how we can carry lessons from early in our career, further into our career, sometimes how things don't appear to be going our way, end up actually being the door we need to get to where we need to go later on in life. Aaron is a wonderful, wonderful example of somebody who is putting the time, putting the effort worked hard, learned so much, now dedicating himself to putting the research behind it and sharing it with everybody else. Aaron, thank you. Thank you again to our sponsors, Humantel. Head over to humantel.com for the most up-to-date industry-leading training on how to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling by correctly recognizing changes in their nonverbal communication and facial expressions. Enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off all their online training. Emotional Intelligence Magazine, ei-magazine.com. Head over there to check out their ever-growing intelligence content, including videos, podcasts, articles, events, training, so much going on over there. And yes, please check out the International Association of Interviewers.com. So you can find all the most to-date information on the events that they're planning, the content that they're sharing, their newest publications, legal updates, all the research for elite professional investigators. Check out certifiedinterviewer.com, the International Association of Interviewers. Thank you all for taking the time to watch this conversation. I really am grateful for it. Please do all the things the algorithms love us to do. Follow, subscribe, share, let your friends know about it. Share your feedback with us. What did you really like? What have you learned? Maybe what didn't you like? What can we do better? Please let us know. And of course, if you know anyone who you think would be a great guest on the show, please send them over to us so we can share their experience with everybody as well. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Take care of each other. See you next time.